Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a brand new podcast from Mayo Clinic, featuring expert insight on today's medical issues. You can learn more about us at mayotalks.com. This week's talk, Sexuality in the Aging Female, was presented by Dr. Carol Kuhl at the Geriatric Update for the Primary Care Provider Conference in November of 2016 in Rochester, Minnesota. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. So when I've given this talk and I've gotten feedback, it was like, yay, somebody's talking about sex. So this is really good. So I have no disclosures. Um, so what we'll start out with is reviewing the uh, physiology and the neurobiology of sexual functioning. So like all good geriatricians, we'll look at what's normal changes with aging, and then what happens with chronic diseases, looking at you know, how can we assess sexual functioning in the elderly woman, and then what is sexual wellness, and how can we actually enhance that. So one of the things we have to get past is that the myth is that elderly people are not having sex. So they are having sex. Um, they may have sex in a different way, and we have to figure out how we can enhance what's happening um, in their present situation, in their present relationship, or without a relationship. So it's pretty um, evident in this study that over time, sexual activity does decline. Uh, men are more likely to be sexually active than women. And if we look at it globally and we look at the different domains of sexual functioning, we can see that lack of sexual desire is one of the uh, primary concerns that people have as they age. We look at the other domains, including orgasm, lubrication, pleasure during sexual activity, and then pain during intercourse, and then look at different countries, and we can see that in Southeast Asia and Middle East, in the Middle East and East Asia, sometimes there's more um, uh, concerns about sexual activity that are reported. And this does correlate with quality of life uh, in, in terms of sex, sexual satisfaction. Uh, what we say to our patients, though, we have questionnaires that we give them, and we ask them what are their concerns, uh, and then we look at are they distressed about it? Because at the end of the day, sex has no rules, and it's only what makes you happy, what makes your partner happy, what makes you happy together. And if you're not distressed about your, your present situation, then it's really a non-issue. But you can see that uh, the primary time when women really get to stress about their change in sexual desire is when they're in the menopausal years. So there's a big shift in those estrogen um, levels, and that fluctuation causes a whole host of symptoms, but oftentimes they'll, uh, they will have a decrease in sexual desire, which may be related to night sweats or not sleeping, vaginal dryness, lots of different issues, and we have to sort through those issues to figure out what's going on. So now we're going to look at physiology and neurobiology so that you can understand how women function. So we used to just think about the clitoris and the vagina, but actually now it's, we, can, we uh, review the clitoral complex. So I always tell women when you're an embryo and you become a boy, uh, you get the head of the penis and the shaft. When you become a female, you get the clitoris, but there's more to it. So it's, there's a clitoral complex that's very analogous to the male. So the glands of the clitoris 
actually has more nerves per volume than the head of the penis. So it's very sensitive. And so that's why there's this preface or a hood that's just like the foreskin on the male. And then there's a root that comes down behind here um, that is also like the shaft of the penis. There's the bulb down here that creates secretions. And so as we get old, these things do change. And I will show you how that changes. Then there's innervation to the vulva. So anything that affects innervation can affect what happens sexually. So the, um, the pudendal nerve comes through the pelvic floor, and its origin is in S2 through 4. So if you think about anything neurologic that's affecting um, that level, or if you think about anything that happens to the pudendal nerve as it comes through the pelvic floor, those things can ultimately affect what happens uh, at the vulva. Also, the perineal uh, blood supply uh, is a very important factor as we age because, as with everything else, vascular changes happen, and this can be affected in this area as well. And then we look at neurobiology. So there are neuromodulators. So we look at what causes stimulation or desire to increase and what causes inhibition. And so I think all of us are aware that SSRIs, serotonin retake, uptake inhibitors can decrease sexual desire and, and decrease response where dopamine will be an enhancer. Um, so understanding what that balance is. And we don't always go changing medications, but we try and help people understand what's happening. And then there's this whole complex circuitry in the brain. But it's very interesting because despite that, uh, that circuitry, even if it's working, the prefrontal cortex is the commander. So if people have, uh, negative ad have learned negative things about sexual activity or have been sexually abused, then that prefrontal cortex can come in right away. You can, you can have a response to uh, sexual um, stimulation but then immediately, if there's been a negative thing in your brain that's been um, encoded, that may come up and interfere with the functioning ultimately. So let's look at this case. So we have a 75-year-old female. Uh, she's been married for 45 years, and these are patients that we see. Uh, she had her last menstrual period at age 54. Uh, she never had systemic uh, hormone therapy, and she's, you know, she's lost her sexual drive. She, says we've not had any sex for about a year. And I will see patients that have come in that have not had intercourse for five or six years. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, they're a little concerned about what's happening in their relationship and they've been able to avoid it for a while uh, because the kids were growing up or the other things were going on. And now all of a sudden it's like, this is really more, this is important. And so let's see what, how we can work with them. They've tried lubricants, um, but there was minimal benefit because she hasn't had sex for a while and um, she hasn't had hormone therapy. Plus, she's diabetic. Okay, so for 15 years, and her hemoglobin A1C is 7.5, so not the best control. And she's had development of a peripheral neuropathy, so that's involving the nerves, as well as probably vascular issues around her, um, her diabetes. She used to smoke, and I congratulated her because she quit five years ago, so that's, that's great, but certainly there's impact from that. So there's several different concerns here in this patient, and that's what makes it more complex to evaluate the sexuality in somebody as they age. So aging factors. So these are normal changes of aging when uh, women lack estrogen. So the declining estrogen actually will affect the epithelial lining of the vagina. So then ultimately the vasculature and the muscles and the connective tissue all begin to change. And then 
elasticity is lost. And then this whole idea of engorgement and lubrication during sexual stimulation becomes more difficult. Sensation is not as sensitive, and they have difficulty with having orgasm. And then muscle tension is decreased. Um, and so if they are able to have orgasm, then sometimes it's not as intense as it used to be. So this is the difference between a healthy vagina and a vagina without estrogen. So you can see that there's elasticity loss. The vaginal ball can actually shrink down. And so it shortens, and then it's not as pliable. So between that and then the dryness on the vulva that can thin out, um, that can cause a lot of discomfort. So this is what it looks like when this is severe atrophy. So there are degrees, and it's this atrophic vagina is now called GSM. So if you see that uh, acronym, it's for genitourinary symptoms of menopause, so or syndrome of menopause. So that's because the thing that's a concern with vaginal dryness and, and atrophy is not just sexual. It's also about urinary symptoms. And so I tell people, even if you're not sexually active, it's really important to keep this part of your body healthy because how many times do we see people come in with repeating urinary tract infections? They get treated. They have pyuria, but it's asymptomatic. And I show them on the little diagram. So the rectum is down here and the urethra is up here. And so when this is all thinned out, you lose your barrier and the, and the bacteria from the rectum can go, oh, that's easy. And so that's why we have asymptomatic, asymptomatic uh, bacteria. Um, so it's important uh, because women will feel this urgency, like I gotta go, I gotta go. I always say, is that how you're feeling? And so that's another reason to consider um, vaginal health and making sure that you're keeping on top of that as people age. So um, up to 40% of women will report vaginal dryness. However, they don't always tell their doctor about it. And so th there are a lot of people out there that have this symptom and they're not talking to you about it because they're focused on their diabetes or their heart disease or whatever else, else is going on. But women who are sexually active do do better because they're having blood flow and they're having stimulation and they're keeping those uh, tissues healthier. So lubricants are something that are uh, very helpful for sexual activity, and there are different types. Uh, the pink is silicone-based, the joe is water-based. So if your partner is having erectile issues, silicone may be too slippery. The water-based is better, and we talk about vibrators with women, and using a vibrator, you want to use a water-based because the silicone will interact with the um, silicone on the... Um, on the vibrator. So you can see that it does increase pleasure and uh, sometimes helps with uh, ease of orgasm as well. And then there's a difference between that and moisturizers. So I always tell women it's like moisturizing your face. You wouldn't go to bed without moisturizing your face, so you should be moisturizing your vagina as well. So these are different because they actually attach to the mucin and the, to the epithelial cells on the vaginal wall, and it'll, it'll bring water into the tissues, which actually stays there until there's a sloughing off, which could be about 72 hours. So if they just use it three times a week, uh, it really is helpful. And you know, when the, when the environment changes in the vagina, you see a decrease in the pH, you see difference in cytology, lactobacillus goes down, you know, the different kinds of cells that are in there change, and vaginal moisturizers actually have been shown to help with that. 
So vaginal estrogen then becomes really important because vaginal estrogen really is helpful in promoting revascularization and thickening that vaginal epithelium. So it can increase lubrication and elasticity as well. And so they have these symptoms of itching and just feeling dry and uncomfortable. And so vaginal estrogen can actually reverse that. So you can use this, and I tell them about up to three months, between four weeks and three months, depending on the degree of atrophy, uh, that that's how long it will take to get re to get rejuvenation, um, but then if you stop it, it's going to go back the way it was. So different estrogens that we use are creams. Um, some of the studies looked at is there a spike in estrogen level systemically if you use a vaginal cream? There was a little bump in estrogen level in the beginning, but that was with two to four grams. We only use one gram, so it's very safe. It, depending on the atrophy, we'll have them use it once a day, uh, or I'm sorry, yeah, once a, day, once a night or a day uh, for two weeks and then twice a week. So there's two different kinds. And then there's the Vagifem. We've not been enamored with the Vagifem because it's only 10 micrograms. In the studies, when they first used it, it was 25, and then for some reason they decreased to 10. So it doesn't get to the vulva. So we'll have people who are using the Vagifem, and then they come in and we're looking at their vulva and we're like, you can see why they would still be having symptoms. You know, why isn't this working? It's because it's not getting there. And then there is the E-string, uh, which you can insert vaginally and change every three months. And I think it's more for the immediate postmenopausal woman than the older pessimist, just because they're you know, trying to get the ring up there and get it out. You know, they really have some problems with it. But people who like it really like it. Um, and then any of these vaginal estrogens are contraindicated in breast cancer on aromatase inhibitor, so that's different. It's very controversial about using topical estrogens in breast cancer patients, and we work with the breast clinic in making decisions about who can have them, who cannot. But we do have now DHEA, so topical DHEA, which we compound in our pharmacy, has been studied and safe in patients who have breast cancer on aromatase inhibitors. And again, we work with our, our uh, medical oncology colleagues. Um, but we have the suppositories, which have been studied, and then we also make a cream. So the suppositories, you know, they're little, they melt uh, pretty quickly when they get up into the vagina, and then they actually can infuse down into the vulva, but the cream oftentimes works really well too, because we, we tell women, if you're comfortable, put it on your finger, and then just the massage of the vulva is really nice, and then up into the vagina. And so the difference is that you have to use it every day. The thing that's been curious to me about the DHEA is that I'm finding more that I read that maybe this uh, could be even better than the estrogen because it is actually penetrating into the muscles. So it not only goes and makes the elasticity better, but then it gets into the lamina propria and then into those that third layer of muscles. So it's going to be interesting to see over time uh, how DHEA um, can be helpful for these patients. So both of these, uh, DHEA and estrogen, uh, since they're not systemically absorbed, you do not need to use progesterone, like we did for uh, patients with a uterus, and we gave them systemic estrogen. Then you had to have progesterone. Uh, but with this, you do not need to do it. You do not need to do screening pelvic ultrasounds or anything like that. With these low doses, it's totally safe. Um, there is asphena, and I, I had a slide here, but that, uh, for some reason, I must have fallen off. Asphena is a... CIRM, so a serum uh, estrogen modulator like raloxifen or tamoxifen, but its indication is for dyspareunia, not for vaginal dryness. They're trying to get that indication. They're working on that right now. Uh, it's very expensive, but all of these are expensive for Medicare patients, and 
Um, we have found in the small population that we have used it that there's been uh, not only uh, increase in uh, or decrease in the pain, but it also had some uh, vaginal dryness uh, benefit. You can work with the company. Apparently, there are ways of getting it uh, covered at a lower cost. So the other thing that happens to these patients is their pelvic floor gets tight. So how many patients have you seen that came in and said, well, I've been using the estrogen, or it's not just that with initial. So when you're assessing, it, is it initial penetration or is it deep penetration? So how many of you said, have patients come in and go, like, I use this stuff all the time. I'm still having pain with intercourse. So why is that? So when you're doing your exam, once they're comfortable with that, not only do you check for adnexa, then sweep around, and so those muscles, the pelvic floor muscles, as you can see, are on the side. So there's two layers. So there's that layer when you first go in past the vulva, and so that's where we see vaginismus, where women, you know, they just like not going anywhere, and this more in younger people. But then the muscles inside, the levator ani and the um, obturator externus, those muscles can get very tight. And it's not uncommon when women have had uh, atrophy or GSM that then they'll clench, and then these muscles start getting tighter. And then, you know, as we age, everything starts, you know, getting a little shifted and you have hip problems and back problems and, you know, and that translates to the pelvic floor. So there are actually treatment for uh, pelvic floor um, problems and we have our physical therapists that really work with us and that's, and so usually we end up treating uh, more than just the vulva. And then we have our therapeutic vibrators that we encourage people to use. Um, and it depends on their age and what they've been exposed to, whether they're, you know, we just kind of bring it up and say, you know, are you interested in using a vibrator? Have you tried a vibrator? Especially if they're having problems with decreased sensitivity because of other things like diabetes and that kind of thing. And so it, they're like, maybe. And so we have our nurses come in and just talk to them about the different options, you know, just, just for, your, for your information. And I've had people from, uh, so what we did, which is really nice because we've got this brochure. Um, and our sex therapist went down and negotiated with the Mayo store. So all our stuff is down in the Mayo store, okay? So when we give them this brochure, we can check, this is what we want. And then they can take it down and give it to the clerk, and the clerk will go get it, wrap it up, and they just pay for it so they don't have to stand in line with a vibrator anymore. So, and they, they appreciate that so much, although I had one beautiful Somalian woman who... Um, said, I really want one. Would you go buy it for me? <laughs> I was like, I wish I could. I can't, though. You know, so people are expanding their ideas about sexuality um, in all cultures, and it's just been wonderful to meet these people. So the primary sexual disorders we see as people age are the interest uh, and arousal disorder that we talked about, orgasmic problems, and then the, the pain. Um, so when we look at desire, there are a lot of different components, and it can be very complex. And so there is the biologic-driven part of it where declining testosterone makes a difference. There are beliefs and values. But a lot of it is emotional connection with your partner. So in your, with your partner, if you're not getting along with your partner, that may be really interfering with your desire. So it's like teasing these things out to see how can we figure out what's going on. So we use this model, um, and we talk about, OK, um, do you, what was it like before? Uh, is it changing now and what's going on? If you have an opportunity to be with your partner, uh, somebody that you want to have sex with, um, do you still get aroused? Are you still lubricating? Are you still having orgasm or not? But you're having a satisfying experience. And if they're not, then we go, okay, we flip the page. And we go, all right, look at this. 
where do you fit in here? And they can go, oh yeah, okay, so hormonal loss is certainly a problem. Um, we see a lot of patients with cancer, and that's, that, uh, that is a big concern because of their treatments. And then if there's neurologic problems, and then we look at mood issues and alcohol issues, and I tell people that, you know, from the inhibition uh, stimulation uh, balance, uh, alcohol, a little bit of alcohol will make things a little bit better, but there's a line. If you have a little more alcohol, then it's going to delay orgasm and things are, you're going to fall asleep. You know, it's just not going to be, it's not going to be worth, you know, it doesn't help you. So a little bit maybe, but too much is too much. So, so we had that discussion. And then again, looking at interpersonal relationships. And as we know, as, as women age, you know, they lose their partners. Um, so that becomes a problem. How are they helping themselves? You know, and we ask them, are you self-stimulating? Um, because that does help with vaginal atrophy. And then what they've learned, of course. So these are the things that we look at and our sex therapist you know, really teases these out when she uh, sees our patients. So there actually have been some studies that looked at what happens to the vulva and the vagina on MRI, and then whether there was a response during sexual activity. So they actually demonstrated, would, would give uh, video clips of sexually provo provocative uh, material to see what would happen, and then they would do these measurements. And so even in postmenopausal women, there is a response, maybe not as robust as when somebody's younger, but actually there was a physiologic change with stimulation. But what was really interesting, and this is not just with older people, it's that, that again, that prefrontal cortex. So if someone actually does respond, whether no matter what's going on in the prefrontal uh, pre, uh, cortex, but still they may view it differently, but it's still, they're still having some reactions. So that is there. So if you can get past the prefrontal cortex and help people overcome those things, their body is working, uh, but they're just getting in the way. All right, so then looking at chronic diseases, so anything that's vascular, neurologic, psychiatric can be a problem. And we're looking more at anatomical damage. So I'm gonna be giving a presentation in Peru and so they've asked to look at birth trauma and what happens. And I can tell you women who have episiotomies, that area, sometimes when they get atrophic, if you're looking for where points of pain are, uh, that area, that scarring seems to get more sensitive as they get more atrophied. So putting estrogen on that area really does help. And then certainly uh, things like incontinence. You know, women are afraid they're going to have leakage during intercourse. So assessing their incontinence is, is really an important piece of this. Um, certainly the anxiety and the pain is a huge part of it. And tremor um, is also important um, because people, they just are uncomfortable. You know, what's your uh, body image really changes as people get older and in the relationship, if they're feeling good about themselves, they can feel good about themselves sexually. So that's a big adaptation. And then we'll talk a little bit about medication because as a geriatrician, where do we go? first to see what's going on is to the med list. Yeah, the med list is the first thing. And I always told the residents um, and the, the fellows when I was director of fellowship, you know, if a person has a problem, first look at the med list and then figure out what's interfering with their activity. And then we're seeing, we're working on uh, developing these survivorships for cancer patients because radiation and chemotherapy play havoc on these patients. If they get pelvic floor radiation, I mean, Atrophy can't even begin to tell you what happens with, with those radiation patients and their pelvic floor. So uh, we're working with them a lot. 
And then what's going on socially with the patient and the situation is really, really an important piece. And so this just looks at the domains for the different types of uh, chronic diseases and what uh, is... Uh, what it affects. I always like to tell the story about the Parkinson's because, you know, when we talk about what turns it on and what turns it off, uh, dopamine turns it on. So if you have a Parkinson's patient and they're taking cinnamon, they might surprise you. So my mother has Parkinson's and she's on cinnamon and I can't take her anywhere. I mean, I take her to, she's, she accosts the people at the uh, restaurant. She's always coming on to the guys and, and she doesn't have uh, frontotemporal dementia either, but frontotemporal dementia is another one where they get, they kind of lose their, uh, their inhibition. Um, so those are, the, I always laugh about that because I'm like, my sister and I just go, <laughs> it's really funny. Okay. So anyway, so look, just looking particularly at diabetes, um, if somebody has not been controlled over time, they actually will have impaired engorgement and they will decrease their vibratory sensation, and they will have difficulty with orgasm, and then even with um, uh, clitoral, clitoral engorgement as well. And then um, cardiovascular disease is another one that I'd really like to speak to, because we know for women that up to 63% will have dysfunction after um, uh, an MI. And so they'll have decreased libido, they'll get the vaginal dryness and have painful intercourse. And is that related to medications? Is that related to aging? Is that related to fear of being sexually active after uh, a heart attack? There was one very nice study done where they looked at women and men at discharge to see if they were counseled about sexual activity. And so they were not, most of them were not. And absence of that counseling was very significant for loss of sexual activity in both men and women. And for those who had sex within the first month after a, a, a acute MI, there was no increase in mortality. So, you know, it's going to be dependent. Of course, all the time we look at, you know, what's the risk, the benefit, and, and, and trying to assess all of those things. But I encourage you, if you have patients that have had a heart attack, that you have that conversation about where they are in resuming sexual activity. So medications, again, we talked about. So some will affect the uh, neuromodulators. Some will affect dryness. So these common medications that we give people actually interfere with sexual functioning. And it doesn't mean that you should stop them, but at least people should understand that this can uh, affect it. So the important thing is men and women who assess themselves as being healthy are more likely to be sexually healthy as well. There's a direct correlation with that but people don't talk about it. So it's really up to you to bring it up. And so we have to be comfortable with how we do that. So we're part of a harmonization project looking at sexual health outcomes with, with Duke and Dana-Farber and University of Chicago and USC, um, Davis and uh, Wisconsin. This single item screener has been validated in uh, both men and women. So there is a single uh, item screener for men as well as for women, but it's something that you can use uh, in, in starting the conversation. Um, and then also the whole idea is that, you know, we need to just give them permission to talk. So you can make it part of your review of systems. It's like, okay, how's your heart? 
how's your head, how's your sex, you know, and just make it just part of a neutral conversation. Or you can say, you know, women who've, who have diabetes sometimes will have these problems with sexual activity. Is that, is that happening for you? You know, and it's not just about the health of the woman. It's also about the health of the man because that will impact their sexual activity if they have erectile dysfunction or if they're worried about hurting their partner. So for us in the Women's Health Clinic, our sexual uh, therapists will bring in the male and they have, she'll meet with the female, then the male, and then do a nice um, assessment of the relationship and how they can go forward. So it's important to get at what do they know about sexual activity and the use of lubricants and date night. A lot of people say, well, I'm not spontaneous anymore. Well, people aren't, you know, you're busy, it's life, you know, and so you have to make a date. Um, so we encourage them to look at it a little, a little differently. And then some people just need intensive therapy to overcome those things that are in their prefrontal cortex. And so we have that um, as, that we can provide for you as well. Or in your, in your um, if you have, if you are seeking out a sex therapist in your local area and you want a recommendation, we actually have a website that we could email to you and then you can look and see who's available. So sexual wellness is wellness. You know, sleep hygiene, we pick up so many people with sleep apnea in our clinic, it's amazing. And exercising, there was one study that was interesting where they exercised individuals and then had them had sex. And they wanted to see if the exercise would improve sexual activity. And so it increased, and the people that uh, participated in the study, and they weren't elderly, elderly, but they were, you know, between 40 and 60, um, they found that sexual exercising before sex was actually helpful. And I oftentimes will tell women who have pelvic floor issues, why don't you do a little yoga before you have sex? Uh, because it relaxes the pelvic floor. We have a couple of yoga exercises that we tell them about. So that actually helps relax the, the pelvic floor. So happy baby pose, child pose, those two poses. And everybody in our clinic, we know we all do them, you know, because we know this is part of health. Is that a part of unwellness, it's part of wellness, doing happy baby pose for 90 seconds a day, doing child pose for 90 seconds a day, can relax your back, your hips. So that's, we try and get that as part of their regimen along with their estrogen. And then um, looking at uh, positioning for people who have arthritis or you know, inflammatory arthritis, especially if they're rheumatoid and they're having pain during sex related to positioning, there are pillows and things that we can provide. Um, and don't forget now, as people age, they're in assisted living. And I tell you, I looked at some of these places for my mother and I was like, oh no, this is not gonna work. So people are, I mean, it's a party. It's a party, I'm telling you. And so they're drinking, they're having sex, they're at risk for HIV, but they don't realize their risk. And I had a, just the most adorable couple, I just love them. And he died uh, in his 80s of, um, metastatic prostate cancer and then she came in about it was about a year later and she had vaginitis and I'm like Mabel Mabel are you having sex and yeah Mabel is having sex you know and, I, and it's like when's the timing that you talk to somebody after they lose a partner to have that conversation about you know if you and give them permission to to have a new relationship but talking about condoms and STD prevention, because these people are forgetting that they still are at risk, okay? 
And then in the nursing home, so there was this nice study done in uh, the Journal of American Medical Directors Association where they looked at nursing homes and what were the policies for sexual activity. So 71% reported that there are issues regarding sexual activity, but how many had policies? Very few. Some of them required the family to say, okay, my mom can have sex. Some said if they were cognitively intact, well, maybe not. Some said um, the physician had to give the order. Okay, do you want to give that order? Or the provider, the nurse practitioner had to give that order. So if you're working with nursing homes and you're thinking about that, you know, in my mind, if you're cognitively intact and a willing, consenting adult, you have a right to have sexual activity. And we need to provide the privacy for that. So there's nothing wrong with it. They're, they're isolated in the nursing home and their life is hard anyway. And so just be thinking about that um, if you're working in the nursing home. And then there are a lot of uh, homosexual uh, individuals out there or single, and we have to be thinking about what, how we treat them in assisted living in, in, in nursing homes because we're going to see an increase of that population because a lot of them are single without children, and so they don't have the support system. So one study looked at um, the use of uh, nursing facilities or assisted living in uh, the homosexual uh, or a population opposed to... The, compared to the heterosexual, and it looked like over time that there was actually an increasing use in that population. And in the studies that we looked at for um, the prevalence of sexual activity, that's just in heterosexuals. So we don't really know what's happening uh, in that population and in single uh, women and men to what, what their activity is. So, okay, so now you understand the physiology. And certainly emotional factors are really important and, and relationship factors are really important. And it's an important quality of life issue. So I invite you to think about that when you see your uh, aging patients and know that they may not want to, to talk to you. But when I published the paper in uh, Mayo Clinic Proceedings on care of the older woman uh, and asked patients myself and looked at a survey that said, if your doctor asked you about sex, how would you feel? And they said, please do. That was the ultimate. Please do, because they may not bring it up themselves. So just a simple open-ended question might be really help, because they may be older, but they're not dead yet, OK? And so there's still a lot that we're learning. And we have a great team at Mayo. I have some brochures out there for you. Uh, we have five physicians and a sex therapist and a nurse practitioner uh, psychologist. We work with our pelvic floor uh, colleagues. And then we have nurse educators that will teach about how to use a, a moisturizer and a lubricant, how to apply that, that estrogen. What about bone health? You know, so all those things that we cover in our clinic, our nurse educators are really helpful for us. And so we just published uh, this book called The Menopause Solution. It's on Amazon.com. And it has everything about menopause. So it's not so much as, you know, uh, geriatric age, but through the menopause change, uh, transition, as we like to call it, uh, we talk about all these different issues. It's, it's really a nice book. People have really received it well. And we were lucky we had a benefactor that gave us money. So we've been actually giving it to our patients in the, that are going through menopause, uh, and they're really enjoying it. So I, I invite you to buy one <laughs> or give it, don't tell your patients about it. Thanks for listening. You can find today's featured talk, along with videos from our world-class medical conferences, at mayotalks.com. New talks are added weekly, so stop by often and let us know what you think.
Talks is a copyrighted program from Mayo Clinic.